This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Janflone. And today we're going to continue our series and do a part three. Part three of what, JJ? Part three of our super awesome and also incredibly sad uh, and illuminating series on indigenous communities, historical slavery, and modern human trafficking. We did our first one a few weeks ago on indigenous Australians. And the other one, which we published last Sunday, which is on Canada's First Nations. And today, part three is about what? So today we are finally taking it all the way back to the U.S., where Seth and I are both from and are present. And what we are going to be talking about specifically is the more of a a sort of a brief overview of sort of the history of, of the enslavement of Native Americans in the U.S., but then the ongoing trafficking of Native Americans that continues in the U.S. And again, just like we did in our previous two podcasts, the the terminology used for individuals here um, is something that I think is is very coded and definitely very much grounded in sort of othering of Native communities and sort of the privilege of white communities. So there's a lot within different communities of don't call them Native Americans, call people by their tribal affiliations, call by their tribal names. But again, because we use legal terms, we are working through the term Native American. So I do apologize to anyone who that is offensive to. I, I completely understand why that would be the case. So just, you know, previous, just, just to have, have a note on that. And then so building that off of two sort of the historical slavery that we had talked about and both our podcast on indigenous communities in Australia and then First Nations communities in Canada, really the enslavement of Native Americans in the U.S. took a lot of similar forms. So you have the forced removal of children uh, to be placed into schools where they were victims of extreme abuse in order to try and assimilate them to this quote-unquote Western ideal. But then more than anything, though, you have sort of this genocidal history of mass killings of Native populations in the U.S. Um, Sometimes carried out, actually a lot of the time carried out by U.S. military forces. So you have the taking of land, mass murder, and then the removal, finally the removal of children, which carried on until the late 70s where children were removed from their families with this idea that they would then be sent to sort of reservation schools, like very much in the the Canada system, where then they would be forced to sort of completely alienate themselves from their initial community. And in doing so then become, oh, I don't even know, I guess non-natives. And so then all, and all of the nastiness followed from, from that that happened in the Australia and Canada cases. So we're not going to spend as much time on that with this particular podcast. We're going to focus more on sort of the, the current state of, of human trafficking in, in this area, largely because there's been a number of ones that have popped up in the last, uh, sorry, a, a number of like legislations and another a number of trafficking studies in the last five or six years. And indigenous communities, which which include people in South Mexico and people in Guatemala, while we're not covering those areas right now, 
like indigenous communities, it seems never get talked about enough and don't get enough representation when they are talked about from people in those communities. So we apologize for that. We still would love to have some people on in the future representing some of these communities. But for today, we're going to shine some light on Native American communities in the United States. And so, JJ, this is mostly in your court, so uh, yep. have at it. Wee! I'm about to talk about some really sad, awful things, and so I apologize to everyone. So what we do know, right off the bat, again, I feel like this is the podcast disclaimer today, we know right off the bat that human trafficking happens in Native American communities in the U.S. in both labor and sex trafficking. Uh, there are reports, and Seth has all of my... Seth will be linking to you all of my info of sort of Native American communities um, experiencing labor trafficking, particularly in the form of individuals being used for like livestock care and in agricultural systems, typically in the southern United States. However, the vast majority of data and research that's out there and the vast majority of reporting happens around this idea of sex trafficking, specifically sex trafficking of Native women. And I maybe kind of wanted to open this part of the podcast uh, with a quote by Sarah Deer, who is an amazing activist, author, scholar, who has a quote, Today, the eroticized image of Indian woman is so commonplace in our society that it is unremarkable. The image of a hypersexual Indian woman continues to be used to market any number of products and ideas. And that's more particular as I've heard where she's talking about how for a very long time, part of sort of the, the killing and the erasure of the native body in the U S was based around this idea of men as violent women as hypersexual. And so then Western men had to come in and exert their control and in, in both these areas for the sake of morality and Christianity. And as a result though, just like Seth and I have talked about when we've talked about sort of historic transatlantic slavery in the U.S. and what it what it's done and continues to do with sort of perceptions of, of race and gender in the U.S. is that this does create sort of this image where Native women then are considered hypersexual. And so Native women then in areas that have large Native populations tend to be viewed, which is insane to me, as being in some way sexually promiscuous or, or sexually available, which does make them vulnerable. So an existing study in a report on trafficking victimization among American Indians and Alaska Native populations, talking about sort of this history of sexual violence and sexual data, talks specifically, and this was one coming out of 2010 from the National Institute, sorry, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey and the GAO Foster Care Survey, talks about how Native American populations in the U.S. have higher levels of poverty, rape, and entry into the foster care system in the U.S. And then something that is tied to those things, poverty, rape, and entry into the foster care system, which is then involvement with law enforcement. These are all things that Seth and I have talked about as being vulnerabilities before to people in trafficking. And, and Seth, why are these vulnerabilities, I guess? Why... why do vulnerabilities matter in human trafficking? Well, traffickers usually look for the low-hanging fruit. They look for people that will be easier to hold, people that won't be missed, 
people that law enforcement might be less likely to look into because of where they're at or because of who they are. Like, like to be fair to law enforcement, when you have people in very rural regions where the local law enforcement have less resources, it's just functionally harder to do investigations for people who aren't important, you know, because of economic status or other reasons. And uh, for traffickers, if they can find people who are in some sense desirable and who won't necessarily be missed or who will find it harder to access law enforcement services or survivor services, all of those vulnerabilities are reasons why traffickers could pursue those type of people. You have anything to add? Well, yeah, and then I think it's that, so this is actually, weirdly enough, so the the late Senator John McCain, his wife Cindy McCain, she's a co-chair of the Arizona Human Trafficking Council, and she's actually talked publicly about how Native Americans are largely overlooked as victims in everything in the U.S., and so that sort of perpetual being ignored by law enforcement as victims, only thought of as perpetrators, being ignored by the general public as victims, that then leads into an additional vulnerability because then when traffickers do go after you, you're unlikely to seek assistance from a government. And bear in mind that for Native Americans, they're living in an occupied country. This land was theirs. They're living under a government that at one point did commit genocide against their peoples and in many ways continues to participate in behaviors that go against their sovereignty or directly harm them, like fracking. Hence the whole debate around whether or not you know a, a massive pipeline can run through native land and so i think that then that lowers both the availability of people then wanting to report trafficking occurring and then people fighting against human trafficking now the sex trafficking angle comes in because of the mar- marginalization of these native communities particularly that of poverty. So when you need money and you don't have a lot available and there's not a lot of industry or the industry that is available overwhelmingly hires outsiders. So people who are, say, coming for fracking, say, coming in from out of state who are non-native themselves, what are you then going to do to make money? And I'm going to quote directly here from a a trafficking research report that was put out on the trafficking of Native Americans in 2012, which is, quote, the perforation of the fracking industry also contributed to a rise in sex trafficking of Native girls and women as man camps were established in remote areas of Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, creating a high demand for sex in an environment rampant with drugs, alcohol, and and limited supervision. While there was widespread media coverage of the rise of sex trafficking in Bakken, discussion of its impact on Native girls and women was limited. Now, just a note, there is a difference between sex trafficking and prostitution. Prostitution, or any sort of erotic service provision, people are participating with consent. They're participating with the intention of making money via the selling of some sort of erotic service provision, right? Sex trafficking, though, which involves the force, fraud, or coercion, means that there's no independent free choice of the will there, right? 
But a study, what, what I think actually, despite sort of the ambiguity in that statement, a study that was put out by the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center talked about how 27% of the 95 Native women and girls that they interviewed, so I mean, granted, a small sample size, but they ran two studies concurrently in Minnesota. They, it looks like from what they had that they actually had like really good ethnography done. So like, even though it's a small sample size, I got it. But the study found that of those 95 people interviewed, 27% Native women and girls interviewed reported activities constituting sex trafficking under Minnesota law, which defines sex trafficking as receiving, recruiting, enticing, harboring, providing, or obtaining by any means an individual to aid in the prostitution of the individual. Then an additional inter, uh, series of interviews with 105 Native women in prostitution found that half of the women had been trafficked using a definition of sex trafficking that included third-party control and exploitation. So I feel for pretty confident saying that then the people who are, who are self-reporting or the people who are being identified by the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center as, as being trafficking victims are indeed trafficking victims. These are individuals who are not participating with consent. These are not individuals who are participating in erotic service provision by choice. And additionally, in the 2011 study, which was the latter study they did that had 105 participants, 79% of the women who were interviewed in that talked about how they had undergone um, long-term or, or for multiple perpetrator sexual assault as children. 92% said that they had been raped while in erotic service provision and that 84 of them had been physically assaulted in prostitution. Now, that's not trafficking. Those are all crimes. Those are all actually exceptionally heinous crimes. But those are not trafficking unless those, viol those violent actions taken against them were done for the purposes of continuing them working in erotic supervision for the monetary gain of another individual which is a really hard thing to talk about and something I think, Seth, you and I have struggled with sort of this, where's the line between where trafficking ends and where just a, a separate crime begins and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think it's also because the same risk factors, I think that put you up for exploitation, like poverty, lack of opportunity, homelessness, basically like a, a history of trauma, any sort of, of physical or mental challenge you might be going through, a lack of education, like all those things that set you up for exploitation also set you up as a vulnerability for trafficking. Then you add in that there's this history of violence happening to, to Native Americans in the U.S. and happening to Native bodies, specifically the sexualized female body. And you look at sort of the, the rates, so directly from the U.S. government, that Native American and Alaska Native women are raped 34.1% more than any other part of the U.S. population. More than one in three will be raped in their lifetime. And that more than six in ten will be physically assaulted. Native women are stalked more than twice the rate of other women. Native women are murdered at more than ten times the national average. And that non-Natives commit 88% of the violent crimes against Native women. So you have this continued mass violence against a small portion of the U.S. population that seems to be continued and that I don't think we really hear about all that much. Can you think of the last time we heard like a news story about a, a Native woman? Not really. And we even have 
a native population in Colorado. Colorado, yeah. That's pretty, I think, actually robust considering. And it, yeah, it just, it, it, it shocks me because, again, this is something that's not talked about. It's something that's not performed in, in sort of major discussions. It's something that I think is not nearly as well investigated as it should be. So one of the things that I think would be interesting is just sort of a look at how all these different countries deal with sort of the transparency of their history. So while you have Australia not really acknowledging what it's done to indigenous communities, they are pretty open about ongoing trafficking issues. Canada has been pretty open about both its history and its ongoing issues with First Nations communities with trafficking, but not with what many consider to be the complicity of, of law enforcement in regards to violence against Native communities. And the U.S. seems just pretty numb or pretty quiet on the subject. I will say that in July of this year, so not super long ago, there was a Senate bill introduced. It was a bipartisan bill. It was the End Trafficking of Native Americans Act of 2018, which was supposed to combine law enforcement and officials, tribal leaders, and sort of academics to combat trafficking specifically from on reservations out. It was aimed at trying to get to the gaps between tribal communities and federal government. But this would, again, push this sort of human trafficking issue under the Bureau of Indian Affairs and would have the Bureau of Indian Affairs sort of be the bridge between the Justice Department and the Department of the Interior. The concern from a lot of communities has been who will then, you know, will this be sort of just another way for the U.S. government to seize control of Native communities or, or Native land and to really sort of push for more like militarization on and in native communities. And it, that's, it hasn't gone up yet. So as we know, law moves slowly. So maybe we can pop back in and, and discuss that a little bit more, but just sort of this repeated presence of native women as sex trafficking victims is really shocking to me and in particular weirdly very scarily paralleling the Canada cases that we've discussed when we we're talking about sort of the, the highway of tears and the highway of disappeared women that has been going on in Canada is that there have been a number of deaths of native women that have not received police media or social service attention particularly in Minnesota there were one of the things I'm going to mention is that in January, three were killed and then two more have disappeared. And so that's actually quite, especially if you're looking at a small population, that's quite large. And so when you continuously have a population say, well, we have our women go missing. We have our women turn up dead. We have our women turn up assaulted. And the police don't seem to be paying any attention. The media doesn't seem to care. No one seems to be paying any attention. And then when data is collected, you know, agencies are not maybe identifying within the race or ethnicity of the victim, you know, tribal affiliations, where are they living? What industry were they involved in? The fact that prostitution is not legal in the U S so those legal, so those who are engaged in non-trafficking associated erotic service provision may not feel that they can report 
when a crime has been committed against them or when they've seen a crime reported. All of these things, I think, have led to the this one, the continued victimization of an entire group of people who have already really just been attacked um, again and again and again. But also then just sort of this erasure of the Native woman as a possible victim in the U.S. And that's very surprising to me. And there's how I even became aware of this um, is there's a phenomenal Native author. His name is Sherman Alexie, but he has a great book called Indian Killer. I highly recommend it. But in one of one of the quotes that he has that I always think about is is the following which is talking about, uh, this is talking about a Native American serial killer killing off white businessmen. But this is his thoughts on race. If you kill a black man, the world is silent. You can hear a garage door opening from 20 blocks away. You can pick up a payphone and only hear the dial tone. Shooting stars sound exactly like the soft laughter of a little girl in Gasworks Park. If you kill a white man, the world erupts with noise, fireworks, sirens, a gravel pounding a desk, the slamming of doors. And for me, what I think is interesting is that that discussion is that he's not even positioning the Native body as being present. But at the same time is really talking about how bodies are clearly, even even within, let's extend it, even within the human trafficking field, as some being more worthy of attention than others. And that's just simply disgusting and something I really hope we can can change. So that's uh, an overview. We'll uh, dive deeper into more specific topics sometime in the future. Yep, and I'm really hoping that what we can do now is that we can get someone who's an activist who works in this field to to come on and sort of give us their their time and attention. Yeah, and yeah, the the, the small amount of Native American blood that I have does not give me any credibility in speaking on this topic. Yep, and I got none. <laughs> Seth and I recently both did 23andMe and went went through all the results, and I found out I've got exactly three things in me. They're all abundantly white. So, Well, I, I knew I had some Native American blood, although I don't know which tribe, and 23andMe did confirm that, yes, there is some Native American blood to confirm what I already know. So anyway... But I think that that's actually just really quickly before we go, I think that that's sort of an interesting thing too, because we have talked about sort of historical slavery and trafficking within tribes before too, mm-hmm. within Native American tribes. And so I think it's just also important to remember that how, how different groups look at nationality or ethnicity or how due to legal definitions of things like blood quantum, you know, how, how identities is very sort of difficult for, for most people to maybe parse out or to accurately describe. But particularly what's really important um, to remember about this is that these are members of a community that are identifying as being members of the community and yet and are suffering repeated violence and yet not getting attention. You know, there's no Taken movie about what they're undergoing. So, and with that, we'll uh, leave you until next week. See you, everybody. All right. Bye, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.